0: Bondservants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Father, we ask you this morning that you would help us to understand this passage. That you would help us to worship you in spirit and truth. That we would see your word, that our hearts would absorb it and internalize it. And that it would lead us to action. That this wouldn't just be some type of lecture that we're sitting under, but that we would realize this is the living, active word of God. We pray this, expecting you to do something this morning. Amen. So what we've been seeing the last few weeks is what one reformer, Martin Luther, calls the household code. Starting in verse 22 through verse 9, we see Paul specifically in directing his conversation to the household. And it's under this framework of what we see in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we saw Paul calling husbands and wives in this mutual submission out of reverence to Christ. We see Paul calling parents and children in this mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. And this morning what we're seeing is Paul writing directly to slaves and masters to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, before we get started, we we need to acknowledge that this is a tricky passage, isn't it? We're speaking of something, especially in American history, that has a very stained background. And so we will get to that. But also, I think what we can recognize this morning as we look at this passage, we'll see a, a, a similarity of what it looks like for an employee and an employer to function with one another in the work environment. In fact, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to read a commentary or somebody who wrote or spoke on this passage without them acknowledging that there is this worker boss or supervisor or manager type of relationship that we're seeing here. So, with that being said, I want to just ask us a question or just point out something that I've noticed and I know that most of you have noticed because I've heard most of you say this at one time or another or you're currently experiencing this. It's that there is some sort of working shortage right now. Some of you are experiencing this at work. Some of you have acknowledged this. In fact, I was curious about this workers shortage, and so I, I went to the old trusty Google, and I typed in worker shortage, and sure enough, 16 hours earlier, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce came out with an article talking about how in 2022, 50 million people quit their jobs. And the year before that, it was 49 million people who quit their jobs. Now, let's be fair. Not all of those people just quit their jobs to do nothing. They either were looking for different jobs or they felt like they needed to change positions. However, we have noticed and felt the effects of A shortage in workers. Let me illustrate it like this. It's a super silly illustration. So Sharice and I, we went to Taco Bell one night, and so we went to Taco Bell, and there was one car in front of us, and as we're waiting, a minute goes by, two minutes go by, three minutes go by, ten minutes go by, and the car is still in front of us, and we finally get to pay for our meal, and I ask Just the guy, how are you doing? And he said, I'm the only one working tonight. So, the fast food restaurant that we know of is actually being manned by one person because nobody showed up for work. So, what's going on here? Well, I know some of you would say, Well, I, you know, it's just this generation. This generation isn't committed. They're uncommitted people. Well, you may say that and you may say, well, I I have proof because I worked at a job for 25, for 35, for 40 years. One job. And it was the worst job ever. But I put my head down and I hated every moment of it. what's going on there? Why stay at a job for 40 years if you're going to put your head down and hate it and then just grumble about it? You see, we, we see that both of those views, this, this idea of, of well, these, this, these younger people, they're just jumping around from job to job. They're not committed. And, and some of the older people who say, well, I've worked at a job for 40 years and I hated every moment of it. There's, there's actually, there's, there's a deep problem with both of these views, isn't there? And, and the, the fundamental problem ends up being is how we view work as humans. We look at work as humans through a very strange lens, through a fractured lens. And so um, I don't want us to miss the the key uh, point of this passage this morning. And I've tried to, in a very original way, um, put a melody around it so that way, while you're working, you can think of it, okay? It's a totally original, I didn't rip off any fairy tale at all for this, all right? Uh, uh. as Christians, you're called to worship while you work. <laughs> so you guys already knew that, Melody. Wow. Okay. Um, right. So, so this and and I, I, I what I want us to see and what I'm hoping that we're we'll see, is this is what Paul is calling the first century slave and master into is 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 that as Christians, with your newfound faith, your new identity in Christ, you are to now worship while you work. But but we can't and we shouldn't just gloss by the tragic reality that Paul is writing to to slaves and masters. And so let's let's look at at this, and, and what we're seeing in our, in our passage this morning is, is Paul, he first directs his attention to slaves and, and their attitude now in their faith, how they are to work for their masters, and then he, he comes up with one motivation for them and the masters, and then he directs his attention to the masters. You, you see, I, I think what we're going to see is that as we see that Christians should worship while you work, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to actually elevate those who are under the masters. He's trying to elevate slaves and masters to the same playing field. He's trying to show them the mutual submission that they're called into. So let's, let's look at our passage this morning. So, so we, we look at, at verses 5 through 7. Bondservants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and and not to man. So we I mean we can't get we, we cannot move on and talk about the tragic injustice and reality that, that Paul is writing to slaves and, and their ma- and masters. Right? And this is an objection of some people, is, is they'll look at Paul writing to slaves, and, and what they'll say is, I could never believe in Christianity because Paul, he's, a, he's affirming slavery. He's, he's actually saying it's okay for slavery, and, and that's not the case. In fact, if you read Philemon, you'll see a different attitude of what Paul is calling Philemon to. Paul makes no theological justification for slavery. He he uses a theological framework for marriage, right? We see that theological framework being played out in Christ and the church, but there's no theological framework that Paul is trying to set forth here. So we have to understand that. And we have to understand that as Americans, we, we look at slavery through an American lens. We look at slavery through what we know of slavery as we were taught in high school, or maybe not taught. And we need to also know that slavery in the first century was a bit different than slavery in the 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th century here in America. How so? Well well Clinton Arnold uh, I've been reading his his uh, commentary for this this book and it's been so helpful. He he gives us five different ways that slavery in the first century was different than slavery that, that we know it here in America. Let me just read them off and make just a couple of points for us. First, he, he says, uh, for the first century, racial factors played no role. As here in America, racial factor played a role, but in the first century, racial factor didn't play a role. If If your, if your nation was conquered... It didn't matter what race you were. If if that nation conquered you and you came in, you became their slaves. Or families would sell other family members to become slaves to pay off debt. We know that's not the case here in our history. So that's the first one. The second one is that many slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetime. Most slaves in the first century could expect to be freed at some point. In in fact, um, there were so many uh, slaves that were being freed in the first century that Caesar Augustus actually had to, to write a law so that way there weren't an overwhelming amount of free slaves on the streets. We know that here in the States, that wasn't the case for those who were enslaved. The cruel injustice... Of slavery led those who were born into a house died in that house normally. There was no hope for freedom. The third difference is that many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. That means that some slaves in the first century could have been doctors, educators. They could have been laborers on farms. They could have been blacksmiths. Number four, many slaves received education and training for specialist skills. So what a master would would do, or what an owner would do, is is an owner would, would help a slave become educated in a certain area so that way when they were emancipated, they could enter into a partnership for financial prosperity. Fifth, Freed slaves often became Roman citizens and developed a client relationship in their for, with their former masters. So playing off of that fourth one, when, when somebody was freed, they would become a Roman citizen. And, and they would build connections with their master and their master's friends, so that way they could prosper and that they would be able to, to as they were free, they could start something, they could have uh, next steps moving forward. All right, so, so uh, we, we see these five different ways and, and we, we see the, the in, injustice though of both because what I'm not saying and hopefully what you're not picking up is, is so slavery in the first century was justifiable. It was, it was an okay act for another person to own another person. Well, no, that's, that's not the case. Let me, let me just quote one more thing for us uh, because owning another human being is is wrong. It's unjust. You're taking the rights and dignity away from that person. Here, this is, uh, let me quote this real quick. The, the bare record of fact shows that Roman slaves, like those in, the, um, in uh, the Americas, were bought and sold like animals, were punished indiscriminately and violated sexually. They were compelled to labor as their masters dictated. They were allowed no legal existence. They were the ultimate victims of exploitation. So what's going on here? What's what's Paul trying to do? He's trying to help new Christians understand a framework of how to mutually submit to one another. in a very difficult circumstance. So Paul, he's acknowledging the social structure of the time while helping new Christians understand how they can love one another. And how does Paul do this? Paul gives those who are bond servants or slaves six-attitude posture to relate to their master's. Their bosses. The the first one that he gives is, is respect and fear. Notice that Paul, he's not saying to, to be terrified and to dread your master. But he is calling them to this high respect and understand to understand the, the master's power and authority. Which then leads him to his the second attitude posture that he calls them to is, is to serve them with a sincere and honest heart. So as you, you respect uh, the person that you are serving, that should lead you to not try to deceive that person. That means that you should, you should work in, in a way where you're not scheming against them, or you're not trying to steal against them, or you're not trying to, to harm their business in any type of way. Why? Well, the, the next attitude or the third attitude posture is, is that you are to obey as if you are obeying Christ, he says. Now this doesn't make the master Christ. He's giving them a, a vision and a picture of, of how to do this. He's, he's almost giving them a heart motivation. If you have a cruel master, visualize that you're serving Christ. If you're having a hard time with bitterness and resentment in your heart, look to Christ, Paul's saying. Fourth, not just making a good impression. Paul Paul is saying here, don't don't just put in the work when somebody's watching. Don't just put in the work when, when your master or your boss is working. Don't just be a people pleaser so that way your boss looks at you and says, wow, that person's a hard worker. All the while, when the boss leaves, you pull out your phone I guess they wouldn't have phones in the first century. But you get, you get my drift, right? The fifth is that you serve because you ultimately belong to Jesus. You, your, your master, Paul is saying, the, the one who, who, who paid for you, he's not the ultimate owner of you. Jesus is. You belong to Jesus. You, you have, what Paul is saying here is, you have a greater master. In, in, in the Greek here, what we could also say is what Paul is telling them to do is he's, he's saying, because you have a greater master, serve from your soul. Serve from your inner being, knowing that it's because you belong to Jesus. The sixth one is is that you are to then serve with goodwill. So you're you're to serve with a happy spirit. You're to, to serve in such a way that it's marked that, that you are, are that you look different, you act different, and that it's all ultimately for the one that you're serving his his or hers well being. Let me try to modernize this with, with this illustration. It, it, what Paul is, is calling them to is he's, he's saying, if Christ is your CEO, serve as if Christ is your CEO. Work as if Christ is your CEO. Why? Why? Well, verse, verse 8 tells us, it, it gives us, Paul gives them a motivation. He says, know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Look, this kind of, this, this kind of talk um, sometimes causes Protestants to, to go like, oh, good works? Uh, I get rewarded for those? That's not what I'm taught. But, but this, is, this is what Paul is saying. What Paul, Paul is saying right here is when you do good to your Master, whether your good works are seen or not, your Heavenly Father is storing up rewards for you in Heaven. The, the good you do... At work, God sees. So Paul is encouraging them. He's motivating them. He's he's telling them, every good deed you do, there is an eschatological reward. There's a heavenly reward that is being laid up for you in heaven. Why? Why? Because you may do good work and your master may not see you or you may do good work and your master may just obliviously skate by and just not acknowledge the good work you do. But God sees it. He recognizes it. And boy, these rewards are going to be better than anything we could ever imagine. These rewards are going to be better than any Christmas morning you could possibly think of. When you get to heaven, Paul is saying, these rewards, the every one is going to be better than the next one, and you're going to look at the last one as completely satisfied. In. These rewards will bring you pleasure in God. So now let's, let's turn to the master's responsibility. So, so the slave is, is called to these six postures, these six attitudes, to, to serve the master in this, this uh, way. But look at how Paul then relates to the masters. And this is where we can say that Paul is actually elevating, he's putting them on the same playing field. Look with me. He says, Masters do the same to them. Do the same what? Act in the same way to your slaves. Act in the same way to your employees. What Paul is doing is Paul is actually calling them to the same six attitude postures to those that they own, just as those that they own should do to them. You see how he's, he's putting them on that same playing field. He's, he's actually calling them up. He's, he's raising both of them up to mutual submission for reverence of Christ. And not only does he call them to the same six attitude postures, but he actually, for, for the masters, he, he asks them and calls them to one more. He says, stop threatening them. Stop, stop, using, stop using your authority to try to get more work out of those that work for you. Stop it. Stop, stop threatening uh, a beating if they don't work faster. Well, stop threatening that you're going to, to decrease them in pay or that you'll fire them and they'll be on the streets because you, you want them to do some type of sinful thing for you that you're not willing, willing to do. He's, Paul is saying, stop that. Stop threatening them just to get more work out of them. Stop threatening them to abuse them. Stop threatening them to get them to do unjust acts for you. Why? Because ultimately, just as, uh, just as the slaves have a greater master, Jesus, uh, masters need to know that they ultimately aren't the true master. They aren't Jesus. And, and that they actually are underneath Jesus as well. That they have a greater master who is in heaven. Who is kind to them. And patient, and loving, and steadfast, and merciful. And this is why Paul finishes then with almost this kind of off-target saying as he ends here. And, and there is no partiality with him. What does that word mean? Oh, that—that that means there's no there's no favoritism. God doesn't. See, favoritism. Right now, God doesn't look at your standing in the workplace and say that person is better off than that person. He, he doesn't look at you and say, well, this person's a more experienced, a, a more moral Christian, so obviously um, I, I like them better than that new Christian who uh, is, is still addicted to drugs. There's no, there, there's no favoritism w- with the Father. And so Paul is calling the masters to not show favoritism as well. You know, I, I, let me try to illustrate this like this. I had a, what Paul is talking about here is, is a term called servant leadership. My freshman year of college, I had a basketball coach who emulated this. And, and, I, and I, I, did not, I didn't understand what he was doing until like, reading this passage and, and studying it and seeing it. Because here he was, he was, he was a coach and he was a teacher at our school. And so here he was with this authority and this power to, to be able to really ignore who he wanted to. To, to kind of pour into to those who were either the better athletes or the better students or, 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 or whatever it, it may be. To, to, to ask those that kind of had that popularity on campus to kind of come with him. And, and, and did he, he didn't do that at all. Instead, what he did, and, and I remember this conversation between one of the players before practice, uh, a player said, coach, why did you eat lunch with him? As if it was wrong for our coach to have lunch with somebody who was studying to be a pastor not an athlete. And, and I'll never forget what our coach said. He, he said, because I care about them, because I, I love them, because I want to get to know them. He, he was showing no partiality, he was showing no favoritism. Here he was with with this authority saying, how can I come under and serve the students who are at the school? It doesn't need to be an athlete. It doesn't need to be somebody who's in my tribe. It could be somebody who thinks differently than me, who looks differently than me. You know, the way that he served and the way that Paul is calling masters to serve is this, is is not to look at it from a top-down position, but an underneath-up position. Saying you know, as as a leader I'm called to serve those who are over me or who are under me. I'm I'm called to go underneath them and come to their needs. I'm not to use my authority for any type of power. So is it, is, it, is it really any surprise that then when we think about something like a, a work shortage that there is some type of work shortage? Oh, because this is the human heart. The human heart is contrary to exactly what Paul is calling humans to do. Those who are in authority want more authority. Those who are in authority want more power. The the, the natural pull for a sinful heart is once they have a little bit of power, they want more power. And that power tends to lead to unjust acts. It tends to to treat people as they're lesser than. So there is is a work problem in our society, and and we we can't deny it. It's evident, and this work problem is constantly showing us that there's strife. Why? Well, like I said before, there's a worship problem going on in our hearts. There's a, there's a, an innate worship problem that's taking place with us. Like what? We'd rather worship power. We, we'd rather worship uh, something like approval, or we'd rather worship comfort. We'd, we'd rather worship money. So, so we take these things that God has given us to worship Him, and what happens is we end up, instead of worshiping while we work, we, work our, we, we worship our work. We become slaves to our work. Uh, all of you can see it at some point. All of you have probably seen somebody become a slave to their work. How does this happen? Well, this, this happens to, to, to those who say, I, I need to make more money because I want more things. So I need to pick up extra hours, I, I, I need to, to work for the bonus. I, I, I need this. And, and as soon as we get those things that we want and our heart isn't satisfied with them, what happens? We start looking at the bigger and better things and we start to say, well, well, now this income that I'm getting won't, won't, it doesn't satisfy any more, me anymore because I can't get those bigger things. So now I need a better job. I need more work. I need a higher paying position. And what's happening? You're becoming a slave to your work and you don't even know it what about what it could even work like this maybe maybe the money's i've met people who say i have a friend who says the money isn't an issue it's not the it's not the money i like the grind i want to be in power i want to i want to manage people i want to be over people the the money i could care less about it's the it's the power and so what happens you you become addicted to promotions and you seek promotion after promotion thinking if i just get this promotion if i could just manage more people then that'll bring me satisfaction. Then that'll, that'll bring me hope. Then that'll bring me what my heart's longing for, not realizing that what's taking place is that you're worshiping your work. Well, some of us, you know, I, I'm, I'm a recovering approval addict. I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge that. And, and for some of us, it's, it's this innate desire for approval. I need to work for the approval of people. And so what do you do? You, you, you put everything out there for the approval of people. So you work for the approval of people. And what happens? As you're working for the approval of people, you become a slave to your work. And as soon as you don't get that approval from, from people, what happens? Well, people don't approve me. Maybe I need to find a better job. Maybe I need to find a different job where people will be more accepting and tolerating of me. People don't love me here at this job. They're not affirming the work I do. I need to leave this job and what's happening. We're in this cruel miserable cycle of worshiping our work. It leads us to misery, doesn't it? It leads us to misery because we were never supposed to find satisfaction in our work. Work work is this constant reminder that we're sinful. Work is this constant reminder that that it's going to be hard, there's going to be toil, that we're never going to be satisfied with the work we do. And as soon as we become satisfied, we start thinking about other projects to put ourselves in. And we just follow the loop over and over. is why we need a Savior. Because through Jesus, we can find joy in our work. Through Jesus, we can actually worship while we work. You see, the the, the work that we constantly do, as miserable as we find it, is supposed to point us to a better worker, a truer worker, a worker who actually works not for his own self-gain, but actually the gain of others. We see this in Jesus' life. Right? If there's if if there is a person in this life who had the worst job, it is Jesus. Right, I mean I can just imagine Jesus having a conversation or overhearing Peter and Andrew and James and John talking about the hardships of fishing. And, and Jesus thinking to himself, saying, At least your work doesn't lead to your crucifixion. This is the the work that Jesus did. Jesus came to actually be the perfect worker for us. Jesus came to work for our salvation. Jesus came to work for our betterment. Jesus came to work so that way when we don't find satisfaction in our work, we can find satisfaction in Christ's work. This is the point of the gospel. Is that we can't work to find satisfaction in this life. We will never work to find satisfaction in this life. But through Christ, we can be satisfied in His work. Because Christ's work is perfect. Christ's work is enough. Christ's work, work satisfies the Father in a way that we could never satisfy. This is what our soul longs for. This is what our heart longs for. And the only place we find this is through Christ. Are you working Day after day, finding your job miserable. Are you working day after day, going home exhausted, knowing that this isn't fulfilling you like you thought it would? I mean, I I can't count on on my hand the amount of people that have said I finally had my dream job and what I realized is that it stunk. It was terrible. Why? Because even dream jobs aren't supposed to satisfy us. But Christ does, and Christ will. Look to Christ. Turn to Christ. See Him and His perfect work for your spiritual needs. He's perfectly worked on your behalf. He's perfectly died on your behalf. He did it perfectly for us. He worked for our salvation. He gave himself up for us. Philippians tells us that he became a slave for us. Are you in this miserable cycle of work? It very well be could be... It very well... It might be that you're dealing with a worship problem right now. It might be that you are expecting that your work will bring you meaning, that it'll bring you fulfillment, that it'll bring you happiness. If you worship your work, it will never bring meaning, it will never bring happiness but through Christ you are able to joyfully work. You are able to actually worship while you work. Why? Because as the love of God is poured into your hearts, as the Spirit indwells in you, there's a greater purpose. There's a higher purpose of why you work. You work now to glorify God. Not yourself. Not your own needs. Your heart, it will be restless if you try to worship your work. If you are looking to worship your work, it will leave you try, tired and wanting. But if you look to Christ, you are able to, even in the most difficult of circumstances, worship while you work. How so? Let's look at at as we conclude let's look at a couple of points of just application. First, let's look at those who are maybe employees. Are you an employee? The the first thing if you're in an employee, look to Christ. Know that you have a greater boss. You have a truer boss. You have a perfect boss that you are working for. One who is kind and compassionate. One who is patient with you. One who is not trying to cause you to labor more and more, but instead ease the burdens. Next, don't just put the work in when people are around Don't just work hard when people are around and then pull out your phone as soon as you're all alone or as soon as the boss leaves. Work hard. Work with a a joyful spirit. Did you know that this type of work is to be evangelistic? It points to Christ. Christ. It points to your true master. So work with with a good spirit. And if you don't have a good spirit that morning, pray for a good spirit. Pray for a joyful spirit. Why? Because you should work knowing that your work, it may go unnoticed by human eyes. But your heavenly father sees what you're doing. He knows what you've done. He knows the good deeds that you're doing. He sees them. I mean, there's not a person in this room that probably hasn't been frustrated for their work going unnoticed. And yet, know this, your Heavenly Father sees your good deeds. He sees all of the deeds that you do. The last way as an employee that you can work is look to respect your boss. Even if it is as grueling and as hard as it may be? Are you being tempted to join in with the gossip and the slander of your boss? Walk away. Pray. And if people call you a suck-up, then what a great opportunity to evangelize and say, I'm not doing that because I'm trying to suck up. I'm doing it because I want to be obedient to the scriptures. I'm worshiping while I'm working, and if I'm gossiping, I'm not worshiping God. All right. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a manager, a supervisor, a boss, a CEO, some, some big, big shot like that. The first thing to always put on your mind is that you ultimately aren't the boss. You will answer to Christ someday for how you lead and manage and supervise the people who are under you. Remember that clearly. Next, know that Christ is... Just as Christ doesn't show favoritism, neither should you. Aim to serve all people that work under you. Not just the people that bring in the most sales. Not just the important people that the world sees. But maybe those that may look as less important. Next, bosses, encourage, 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 and don't threaten to get more work out of those that work for you. Lastly, both to bosses and employees, realize that the good deeds you do Ultimately, do end up in heavenly rewards. There is a purpose behind it, there is a motivation. Strive for heavenly rewards. It's okay. It's okay to strive for heavenly rewards. You can do it. Paul is telling us to do it. And if we get to heaven and we're wrong, then we'll say, God, but you had Paul write this down. I don't think God's going to do that, though. Strive and work for heavenly rewards. Friends, work in such a way that people see you worshiping your great and lovely Safer. This is going to be cheesy, but I've been reading a, a, a biography about a guy who used to always, he was a pastor. He, he used to always tell his congregation, cheer up. So I'm going to steal this from him because I've been, I've been listening to it, actually. Cheer up. You have a Savior who worked for your salvation. Now you work for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we know that work is so hard at times. We know that we oftentimes, we don't get the good bosses like we desire And sometimes we don't get the good employees like we desire. And and yet, what a perfect way for you to help us see your gospel. So please, let us be aware that work isn't to bring us satisfaction, but that Jesus is. And that we can worship while we work because we can have Christ as our motivation. Help us, God. Our hearts are slow to learn this. Our hearts are slow to believe this. We, we desperately need your spirit to soften our hearts to this message. Amen.